0: Hey! Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week I've been thinking about a friend of mine. Or maybe I should say an old friend of mine. I haven't spoken to him in months and it's been years now since I unfriended him on Facebook. I finally blocked his number from my phone just a few weeks ago for the third and I think final time. It was a relief, but also a kind of tragedy, my own personal encounter with the tearing of our social fabric. An old friend lost to I don't know what. We texted often, but it wasn't always a welcome exchange. The memes he would send me were difficult to manage. They would come in the middle of the day, equal parts hate and glee, and the arguments they would spark would ruin me. The incoherent politics were just as bad. Dispassionate conversations about the news or some policy always descended into barbed attacks on liberals and all their enablers, often including journalists. Wounded, I would return fire. And I'd be worse for it. Other times, he would send love for my family. And he told me that he would always protect me, that I was his brother. But his love and fond memories of our past would so often give way to belligerent defenses of whatever it was that he believed, which I could never quite discern beyond a kind of reactionary zeal that held little sacred beyond family, guns, and Donald Trump. It wasn't always like this. I felt like I was losing him. One of the last things he shared with me was news that he had made a purchase, two new Hawaiian shirts, He called it tactical gear. This was something new, and I had read a little bit about it, the Boogaloo movement. I told him I heard it was bad news, but he said there was nothing to worry about. The fact that he was going Boogaloo wasn't why I blocked him. If anything, I wanted to understand why this weird new movement made sense to him. But the hate was just too much. I don't remember if it was a meme or a nasty comment, but I chose to walk away. So I've been interested in this thing, these guys with their Hawaiian shirts and their guns showing up at rallies and on my newsfeed. And when The New York Times published an in-depth exploration of the movement, its origins, and its goals, I read it immediately. This week, I'm talking to the author of that story, Leah Satili, about Boogaloo, what sets it apart from other right-wing movements she's covered, and why it's so difficult to nail down exactly what it is that its adherents want. Then, later in the show, I'll bring Crosscut reporter Manola Sakaira on to discuss what happens to a tourist town when the tourists don't show up. And I've got a programming note here. As you might have noticed, Bakari Sellers is not on this week. We had to reschedule that interview again. It will happen soon, though, I promise. So if you have questions for the former South Carolina state representative, send them to me at talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Leah Satili. Leah is a freelance journalist based in Portland, Oregon, whose work focuses on people living on the edges of American society some of whom are in conflict with that society. Over the last few years, she's focused her attention on the saga of the Bundy family and their clashes with the federal government. You can hear the entire story on Bundyville, a podcast from Oregon Public Broadcasting and long reads. It's an amazing podcast. Please, when you're done listening to this, go and subscribe to it and listen to it all. So last week, the New York Times Magazine published Leah's in-depth look at Boogaloo, an anti-government extremist movement that is a little different than the militias that America is accustomed to dealing with. Leah writes that the Boogaloo is leaderless, and its goals differ depending on which Facebook or Telegram group you're hanging out in. Some of these men claim to be anti-racist, while others hold white supremacist beliefs and warn of an impending white genocide. While some Boogaloo pages on Facebook feature periodic talk of racial justice and urgent needs to address climate change, Many others are filled with memes featuring neo-Nazi black sons. If there is one thing that binds the boogaloo together besides guns and Hawaiian shirts, it is a firm anti-authority, anti-law enforcement stance and a willingness, if not an outright desire, to bring about the collapse of American society. Leah, welcome to Crosscut Talks.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, you know, I think that uh, we all have... Uh, had Boogaloo kind of appear at some point in our lives in the last year or two, and it's a curiosity. It's a very strange thing, and it gets just stranger the more that we learn about it. When is the first time that you ran into the term Boogaloo in this context, and how did that come about?
1: So I first saw um, the Anti-Defamation League last fall, so in the fall of 2019, write this kind of dossier on 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 the Boogaloo and what they were seeing and how the word was being used and kind of co-opted by anti-government groups and some racists, some not. And I kind of, you know, read the piece and put it out of my mind, honestly, because I'd just been so concerned with like militia groups and kind of this like... Rural Western discontent that's like an extension of, you know, a decades long fight over public lands and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Then I saw them really emerge again in early 2020 when there was that big gun rights rally in Virginia. Virginia legislators were weighing a package of gun control legislation. And there was just this surge of people that came from all over um, to, you know, carry their guns and show that they didn't agree with it and, and that sort of thing. Tons of militia groups, but a lot of Boogaloo people. So I really kind of just thought it was like this new style of the militia movement. Like people were just like wearing Hawaiian shirts now or something. and right that was even still in this sort of early um, marination period of the movement, trying to figure out, you know, are we two, a guys, what are we talking about? What are we doing? And really, I think it was in, um, when the lockdown happened with coronavirus and everything, then I think we really saw like what the boogaloo was and how it really differed from the militia movement.
0: Hmm. So, I mean, as you note in this story, um, which is excellent, by the way, um, Thank you. this is a pretty seemingly disjointed movement. I mean, it's a hodgepodge of discontent, right? You note that that this really started on 4chan and other internet boards as kind of a running joke. It's a sort of a stew of memes, right? Like, and And with people with all different types of agendas and grievances. And that it only just recently became sort of actualized in a way where you have people at rallies and protests with patches carrying long guns wearing Hawaiian shirts can you detail for us how that evolution happened was it the pandemic and what and what was it about the pandemic that 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 brought boogaloo into the kind of public sphere in the way that it had Walk us through how that realization happened.
1: Sure. So so I'd sort of seen that, like, reporting, um, Jason Wilson and Robert Evans did this great kind of, like, uh, origin story that was on that website Bellingcat about the origins on 4chan of the movement and, like, what their posts were and what they were talking about. And it was very, like, very much online, a lot of people talking online, but not really bringing anything into action or real life. Um, so then, like I told you, there was this gun rights rally that happened early in the year. Then we had lockdowns. And I guess the best example that I can give of why the lockdown sort of led to this movement sort of emerging real, in real life was this case that happened in Las Vegas there's this group called Battleborn Igloo. They formed really in early April. And it was just kind of a bunch of guys, a lot of ex-military people getting together, really talking about being libertarians and, you know, um, expressing a lot of their political views about the two-party system and how much they hated that. And so they start getting together because of these reopening rallies. So, so here's this reopening rally that happens in Las Vegas. A lot of people, very normal people kind of coming out and saying like, we're upset, you know, a lot of Trump supporters and stuff. But then you've Mm -hmm. got these guys with these guns that are there. And even a reporter in Las Vegas, a radio host kind of called them on that and was like, why are you here? What, what, what's with the guns? Like, what's, Hmm. I don't know, like people didn't quite understand why they were there. So That event, I think, showed that that people saw an opportunity. We can get together in person and sort of gather and people will see us as like two A guys. That group of people started going on hikes and they started trying to plan like, what can we do? What can we what can we do to bring us like into um, action? And it was super interesting to learn that they were kind of looking at targeting a fees, a National Park Service fee station that they would fire a bomb it or something. Or maybe they would look at like a power grid, somehow trying to take out a power grid, thinking that it would incite chaos. They were, they were trying to find something to like get people, not themselves, to be like the instruments of their own chaos. So they're, you know, they're thinking through all these ideas and then George Floyd is killed. And we see this huge nationwide uprising in every city in America, including Las Vegas. And very quickly, these men in Las Vegas, according to this person who was an informant in the group, um, they pivoted and they said, let's show up at those protests. That's where we wanna be because they could direct their anger at law enforcement that they see as the, the instruments of the government, but really also thought, well, we might be able to pull something here that could um in a way, turn the protesters into the kind of agents of their own chaos, I guess that that maybe if they threw you know Molotovs or something like that that then that would incite a riot or or something like that
0: hmm and it very quickly moved to actual violence in some and, cases and really yeah. like the taking of life mm-hmm. right you You write about this incident in oakland, and i'm I'm wondering if you can maybe briefly. Explain what happened with that, because that seems that incident seems very uh, telling about sort of where where the movement lies in this sort of whole whole mess of uh, of civil unrest.
1: Yes, absolutely. So when the George Floyd protests started in the Bay Area in Oakland, specifically, you know, a bunch of guys that were in these Boogaloo Facebook groups started chatting and saying like, okay, maybe there's something here with these protests. Um, To be clear, these were people who had been posting a lot about being anti-racist and there are lots of Boogaloo groups that have a lot of white supremacists talking it. This, this, from what I can tell, was not one of them. So they started talking, okay, there's something we can do with these protests. So um, a man named Stephen Carrillo is accused of telling other people in the group, let's use these protests to basically achieve our own ends. And he and another man drove a van by the federal courthouse there, which had been sort of the... Like Homeland Security and that sort of thing were concerned that the courthouse could be a target of the protests that maybe they would go Mm -hmm. there and, and, you know, commit property damage or something like that. So knowing that Carrillo and his associates supposedly committed a drive by shooting where they just shot up a guard station, they injured one man and they killed another And then eight days later, um, that van was seen in Ben Lomond, California, kind of near Santa Cruz, and the police basically tracked it to Stephen Carrillo's property. When they approached the property to, you know, confront him about what was going on and what was going on with the van, he started firing at them, shot and killed one, shot several others, and fled from the property, carjacked a car, and eventually, you know, abandoned that car and wrote sort of this statement about the boogaloo in his own blood on on the car. Super harrowing situation. Obviously, it is the deadliest incident so far committed by somebody who identifies with the boogaloo. But it has also not been this. This is a leaderless movement. So you don't have like a statement coming out on on a widespread scale of people saying like this is not what we are all about. Certainly, I've talked to people within the Boogaloo who say, like, we don't even know who that guy was. Um, He wasn't a part of us. But I think that this sort of brings up this question of, like, how movements regulate themselves. You know, if you Mm -hmm. if you truly don't believe in committing violence against police officers, then then why isn't there more of a statement of that coming out? So that, yeah, that incident was the biggest one in terms of violence. However, there was a Boogaloo boy in Texarkana, Texas, who said that he was going to hunt police officers and live streamed himself trying to do that kind of thing. So there's, you know, all around the country, not just in the West, all over, there have been these incidents of people with firearms and pipe bombs and tons of ammunition Kind of aligning with this movement that really is all about bringing about some sort of cataclysmic event.
0: So you've spent a lot of time talking to militia members, studying militias. You spent a good amount of time talking to to Boogaloo boys and and um, and others for the story. And you make very clear in the story that there is a that there is a difference between these two, and that that difference is um, that Boogaloo like. In a way seeks to bring down society sure. um what is the nature of that difference between the two of them
1: there is a distinct difference because i think for a while i thought you know these are just militia guys in hawaiian shirts and in some cases you know right. in the case of the washington three percenters you've got matt marshall the you know de facto leader of the group wearing a hawaiian shirt now and also being a three percenter so it's it's been a little bit confusing but what what i was able to deduce is that over the course of tons of years of reporting on militias like there's always this sort of preparing for some kind of future uh disaster whether that's a pandemic or a hurricane or you know government takeover and gun roundups and new world order and all kinds of conspiracy theories, there's almost sort of like this optimism to it. Like we're obviously going to be so prepared that when society collapses, we'll be the ones to kind of set it up again and people want our help and, and really kind of setting it up in our own image where mm-hmm. it benefits people who are like us the difference with the boogaloo is it's much more nihilistic it's it's in the case of someone like stephen carrillo or even some of the guys in las vegas based on what we know that has come out of court um there's wanting to be the bringers of of that apocalypse or that chaos so it's not so much trying to like set up a society that benefits the militia movement it's a we want to take action we, we want to be the ones to do something. And there was this incredibly telling grand jury transcript, which, you know, I should point out, are, can be very unreliable, especially with people who are paid informants by the FBI. But there was mm-hmm. this FBI informant in the group who basically was saying, you know, militias are old guys. These are guys who just want to, like, eat and go to bed and, like, talk about the government, but they never want to do anything. We want to be the ones to do something. And I think that that's notable because you have a lot of people in the Boogaloo who are ex-military, a lot of people who, who maybe um, desire to be like a Timothy McVeigh, who also felt that same way, who wanted to, you know, do something so cataclysmic that the government would brought to its knees i mean that's what really what he wanted from the oklahoma city bombing was to commit something so violent and so unforgettable that they would never commit another waco again
0: so which to me the natural follow-up to that is why i understand the militia perspective i understand this you know i mean i uh, I grew up in the country uh, uh, around a lot of gun owners. I understand self-sufficiency. I understand the kind of pride that that one can feel in being prepared for um, for uh, for chaos and disaster and and all of those things. Um, it it just seems not just like a small split but just a radical split to just want to incite chaos and I and I, I wonder, is there a historical analog for this perspective or is this something that is just really fresh and new that we're seeing this kind of these people organizing to destroy
1: where i'm at with this is that you know conspiracy theories are really what What invigorates the anti government militia movement? You know, they believe that there's a sort of like fabled New World Order that is going to come in and, you know, round up everyone's guns and stick people in camps and that kind of thing. So there's this conspiratorial nature of it. So if the Boogaloo is in a way a a bit of a fracture from that, and I should say that I think most Boogaloo boys identify as libertarian, not conservative. So I think that that's really the difference. If there is something new to it, Based on the reporting that I've done, I think you have a lot of people who don't identify with those conservative politics. You know, you've got lots of boogaloo boys that are fine with, you know, uh, marijuana legalization. You're, they're fine with um, gay marriage. They're, you know, they're fine with a lot of these sort of progressive social issues that have kind of become under fire in the, during the Trump administration. I haven't met... Right. Many Boogaloo boys that are pro Trump either, so so mm. I think that that's you know that's something that's kind of new. But you know I think that when you have a growing chasm between people and their government, this this is sort of what happens. I mean I go back to McVeigh. I've been doing a lot of reporting on McVeigh, so that's what probably have him on my mind, but. You know, that was a person who served in the Iraq War, who was this sort of model soldier and came back and just kind of had no options. You know, he he went from being exemplary to being kind of nothing and and found a haven among other gun owners who were very conspiratorial. He had racist views and I think wanted to be important in some way. I think you've got that going on. But I think, you know, the, the thing that is really new and it's new for the militia movement, too, is the presence of social media here. So, I mean, there would be right. no Boogaloo without 4chan and Reddit and Facebook and all these other social media options. And, you know, there are things like you'll see these memes on Boogaloo pages about voting from the rooftops. And it's sort of this, um, this you know, filtered Meme sort of thing where it's got these men on top of a building with guns. It's a famous photo from the LA riots from 1992 where Korean American business owners got on top of their businesses and sort of fired warning shots to keep people away. There is a vast cultural context to what was going on in that situation that I won't get into, but, but what you've seen the Boogaloo do is take this sort of snapshot just like these like 15 second videos of protests that we see on Twitter these memes have kind of become this new language so all people see from that is people of color using guns to exert some sort of power you know again right. all of the context is lifted away from what actually happened in that situation So if there's anything new to it, it's that sort of language. And I think that that's where you have some of the head scratching on the part of, of legislators and social media, because you've got young people who know how to use these social media platforms in a way that, you know, you know, somebody's mom doesn't understand. It's like they're speaking a different sort of language to each other and a shorthand and, um, You know, I mean, there's just a lot of people embodying or or somehow feeling called to this, like, potential for violence. You know, and I think Mm -hmm. that there's something deeper there to that. There's a lot of young people who feel really sidled by, like, the world's problems. They're young and they know they're inheriting a lot of issues. And that maybe for some people, their way of dealing with that is just saying, let's burn it down.
0: Well, there's also an aspect of isolation. This, you know, collection of people feeling isolated, coming together, having common purpose, having all these different agendas. As you said, you know, the um, militia movements, and now it sounds like the Boogaloo Boys all look at this as opportunity to go in and potentially recruit, right? But y- you move very fluidly within this universe. You have a lot of sources within right wing uh, militias, and I'm kind of curious. Have you talked to militia members about what they think about the movement?
1: I have not had asked that specific question because you have seen in um, several towns and cities around the Northwest of incidents where um, there were Black Lives Matter protests. And here come these militia groups that are there to protect property. Um, And within those groups, you saw guys in Hawaiian shirts and flak jackets. And then you also saw in other places, those same boogaloo types marching with Black Lives Matter or saying, we're here to protect you. So this is, I think, what's difficult about it is even if I were to ask some militia people like, hey, what do you think of the boogaloo? I think that it's, it's really hard to pin down like, well, which kind of boogaloo are you talking about? But also, you know, it is a leaderless movement, but so is the militia movement. Like, I think that that's something a lot of people think is that, oh, these, you know, three percenters and Oath Keepers are super organized. They're not. And so, you know, there really are a lot of similarities. It's just trying to understand, you know, how genuine is your desire for racial justice and to be anti-racist when you have people suggesting that they use protesters as an instrument of their own chaos. Like that seems to me to be the most potentially racist thing you could do. So it's, it's, it's difficult, (laughs) you know, and also, you know, you've got people of all races and all ages in, in these groups, both militia and Boogaloo. So it's um, I think it is appealing to people who are in the militia movement who are like, OK, yeah, we, we're ready. We want to do something.
0: So what is the federal government's view on this movement?
1: In the story, I talk a bit about how the FBI views white supremacist groups. And, you know, 2019 was one of the highest years for domestic terror violence since 1995 when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, killing 168 people. So, so you have that going on, but at the same time we saw Homeland Security really pushing out this narrative of that the problem was Antifa that the problem around when, when the George Floyd protests started was that these Antifa and anarchists and things like that. There was really no acknowledgement that I'm aware of of the Boogaloo. And, you know, on the other hand, you have social media saying, we're gonna like really push right now to like take down these Boogaloo groups and like dismantle their pages and make sure that this isn't a gathering place for them to be able to, you know, plan their chaos or whatever. But I want to be clear that the entire time they were saying that I was reporting this story and the Boogaloo groups that I was watching were were very much alive on Facebook.
0: Hmm. And so what do you think is going to become of this movement? Is this a, a flash in the pan or is this the beginning of something that's real?
1: I, um, in the story, I talked to, at length, to um, a Boogaloo boy in Waco, Texas, who is a part of this group called Tree of Liberty. They have a website called Tree of Liberty, but they also have a uh, group called the United States Boogalier Corps. And, um, you know, it's, it's like these ridiculous names. But what my conversation with that man was really interesting to me because... I saw that he was very concerned about their image and he was really concerned about being seen as helpers and he shared with me this anecdote of going to a protest over face masks and you had a bunch of people without face masks and you had a bunch of counter protesters with face masks and by his telling he and his friends the boogaloo boys were in between saying Neither of you can even hear each other. How can you protect each other's rights if you're just shouting at each other? Now, I don't even know if this is true. I couldn't confirm it. But if it is true, I think that it just shows that there's this, that even the boogaloo doesn't know what to do. My fear is that it really only takes one person to commit violence. We see that with what happened with Stephen Carrillo. We see that with what could have happened in Las Vegas and all these other incidents. So... It has a real risk of becoming an extremely violent movement and a catch-all for people with all sorts of ideologies to commit violence if it doesn't figure out a way to take a stand against violence. But, you know, if the heart of your movement is violence, then I suppose you're going to try and get what you want.
0: All right. That's Leah Satili. You can read her story about the Boogaloo at the New York Times. The title of that story is The Chaos Agents. And again, listen to Bundyville. Just go and listen to it. Leah, thanks for coming on the show and sharing the story with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Hi, my name is Mason Bryant, and I'm the associate editor of Crosscut Opinion. We are surrounded by two massive and complicated stories right now. Knowing what to think about the pandemic and the protests can feel like a full-time job. That's why, over the last few months, Crosscut Opinion has tried to bring analysis and argument to bear on these history-defining events. With help from a roster of really smart writers, I'm working every day to introduce new ideas, and maybe a few old ones, into the public conversation. If nothing else, we hope the op-eds and essays we publish can help you think for yourself about this tumultuous moment and how it's transforming society. All of this commentary is free for you, but it does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news and opinion source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners like you to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com slash donate. Okay, back to the show.
0: I've got Manola Sakaira here now. Manola reports on the changing region for Crosscut, which used to mean that she wrote stories about the impacts of rapid economic expansion in the Seattle area. But in the last six months, she's been more focused on the kinds of change that accompany economic contraction. Recently, she told the story about a tourist hotspot on the Olympic Peninsula that has gone cold. Manola, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, happy to be here.
0: So to start with, can you tell me what a normal day looks like in the town of Port Angeles during a regular summer?
3: Yeah, so Port Angeles is a really big tourist town. It's one of the biggest towns on the peninsula. So usually at this point in the summer, there are just hordes of tourists from not just Washington, but also out of state and international visitors, too. I know that they get a lot of visitors, you know, from Asia and from Germany um, as well as Canada, which is obvious since they're they're just so close to Canada. But yeah, usually really, really busy this time of year. Um, this is kind of the, the biggest time of year for businesses in the area in general. I lived for a year there when I was younger. And I just remember always, you know, there always being festivals there. Just going to the beach on any given day in the summer, you'd always see just a ton of people. And, and you know, some of the Fishing and crabbing stuff that goes on in the peninsula being a really huge draw. It's usually
0: packed. <laughs> what does it look like now?
3: Yeah, right now, I'd say that definitely it's definitely not as packed as it usually would be this time of year. I have been hearing from businesses that they've been getting more in-state and neighboring state visitors, which I think is interesting. So it sounds like people are really taking that local travel mindset, um, which has kind of been promoted by a lot of um, businesses just to keep local businesses alive. But generally, much less packed than it normally would be.
0: So the linchpin of this story is the Coho Ferry, right? This is a ferry that's owned by a company called Black Ball. It runs (laughs) between Port Angeles and Victoria, BC. That ferry is not running right now. It hasn't been running all summer. Why exactly is that? Is it because of restrictions or is it because there isn't any demand?
3: Right now, the Canadian border is uh, closed for travel, for leisure travel. So, I mean, that's basically what the ferry did in its entirety. So it's been closed just because they're not able to make the same trips or not able to offer the same services as they were before. And it won't be open, they say, until the Canadian border opens up again, which has been a little bit, I guess, worrisome since um, the Canadian government has been pretty conservative with how they're moving forward with that.
0: So we don't have any Canadians coming into Port Angeles. You know, what's the significance of that? What kind of an economic impact does the ferry have on on Port Angeles and the peninsula in general?
3: Canadian tourism, I mean, it's part of this larger web of international tourism for the peninsula, so it's not just that alone that, that's a huge driving force, but it is definitely a huge chunk. And even just talking to a couple festival organizers, even for Crab Fest as one example, the organizer told me that without Canadian tourists, it just could not operate, that they would considered doing some sort of drawn-back version this year, um, you know, coronavirus conscious version, but without those tourists, he told me that it just wasn't possible. So I think on a bigger scale, Canadian tourists are just one big chunk of the international tourism that comes into the peninsula and, you know, frequently a pretty reliable one, but, but now that's just, um, completely gone. So it's, yeah, it's really worrisome for a lot of, for a lot of businesses that their neighbors can't come in anymore. (laughs)
0: And and what is this in raw numbers? I mean, what is the actual impact on the economy? And I'd imagine millions of dollars, you know, mm-hmm. jobs. Do, do you have a, a read on that?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, with the ferry itself, I know that the ferry supports, I think, around a thousand jobs in the county just by its existence. So you can kind of see through that, that without the ferry, that impact really trickles down, not just to the employees of the ferry itself, but also hotels and restaurants and all these other businesses that have said themselves that the ferry's existence is a huge part of their existence too. Just in the fact that it's a reliable daily presence in the peninsula, that obviously isn't that presence anymore. And then just in kind of more general terms, talking to businesses, I've heard that you know, tourism from people out of country can make up to a third or even half of what they make in the summer. So it's hmm. it's a really huge impact.
0: So on top of this lack of international travel, you also just have the capacity restrictions for coronavirus, right? Uh, you mentioned a few examples of how people doing business on the peninsula are managing how are the business owners feeling about this? Are they angry? Are they resigned? What's the, what's the mood?
3: A lot of these businesses like restaurants and stuff like that, that we wouldn't normally call simply part of the tourism industry, since they're so much broader than that on the peninsula, that's really what they are. So yeah, without it, it just sets everything off kilter. And I think a lot of business owners are just not so much frustrated by it because a lot of them that I've spoken to understand the restrictions and understand why, but anyone I've spoken to, you know, talk to any business owner and they'll tell you that they're really, really worried because summer income is huge, like huge for these businesses and gets them through the winter when everything is much much more toned down. I just hear a lot of worry and honestly, just a lot of people wondering, what Port Angeles is going to look like, or even just a lot of small towns on the peninsula, what they're going to look like in a year. Hmm.
0: All right, that's Manola Sakaira. You can read her story about Port Angeles at crosscut.com. Manola, thanks so much for coming on Crosscut Talks.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Manola and to Leah Satili for joining me. This week's episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten, we'll be back next week with another episode.